But the thing that's going to help you most in your career is this openness to continually learning, right? That, that the belief that you walk out that door when you graduate and that it's over is, um, if it's been sold to you, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's, that's not the case. <laughs> Welcome to episode number 49 of the Balancing Act podcast. Uh, I'm Andrew Tempty. Today, we've got Dr. Taggart, or TJ Brooks, joining us. TJ is uh, Dean of the College of Business at the University of Wisconsin at La Crosse, which I am very proud to say is my undergraduate alma mater. Thank you so much for being here, TJ. Thanks for having me. So I've asked TJ to join us on the show as our third guest in this mini-series on the importance of change management within organizations uh, to get the perspective of business and higher education. So TJ is going to come to us with, with both of those perspectives. But before we get started, as I always do, it would be wonderful if you told our listeners your story. Yeah, my, my professional story is, uh, is uh, a pretty, uh, um, I think, fairly traditional one in some respects, in that uh, I did my undergraduate at UW-Madison uh, in uh, economics. I graduated in uh, 1993, which is becoming a long time ago, and uh, went, uh, moved back home with my parents. My father uh, owned a small business, a packaging company, packaging nuts, bolts, and screws, and was starting up a a new business. And so I, uh, in addition to that, and I, I went uh, to work for him for a little while and lived at home and, and then discovered that maybe that wasn't the best long-term strategy for me and the, for our family. <laughs> um, it wasn't super excited about it. Uh, so I uh, only knew how to do one thing, which I felt like was go to school. So I went back to school. My intent was to get a, a PhD. Eventually I, I got into University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, which yep. um my intent was just to go to graduate school to demonstrate that my undergraduate grades were below my uh, potential. And I was going <laughs> to um, uh, try to transfer to another school and, and pursue a, a PhD in political science. And uh, I started in economics because I had had some, uh, obviously, the undergraduate training in economics. And I got my admitted into the terminal master's program. And I was uh, talking to the graduate advisor professor uh, asking for recommendations for graduate school for political science. And he said, you know, uh, there's a lot of economists that do political science, do political science, and uh, not a lot of political scientists that do economics. And, you know, economists make more than political science scientists, right? And, uh, and you're halfway to a PhD, so why don't you just stay? And so I said, you know, when you put it that way, that's a pretty good idea. Um, so I stayed and got my PhD in economics from, from Milwaukee and then um, came to UW La Crosse as my first uh, job. Um, uh, got promoted, uh, eventually became a chair when, uh, someone retired and I decided I thought I could do the job was chair for 10 years of the economics department. And then, uh, for two years, uh, before I took my current gig, I uh, was also chair of the finance department as an outside chair. And then, um, the, um, the Dean retired at the time, uh, this is right, uh, at the start of COVID and I became the interim, uh, Dean of the college. And then, um, just recently was appointed the uh, permanent Dean of the College of Business Administration here. So I describe my career as kind of a process of just falling upwards. 
<laughs> falling upwards. Uh, that, that's nice. So we, we have the, uh, the wonderful intersection point in our career development as both being uh, economics uh, un- undergraduates. Your story of uh, the, the poli-sci uh, folks saying, hey, if you stay in econ, you, you can make more money. Uh, I had a very similar experience, uh, but in uh, in the econ department at UWL, where uh, Keith Sharoni uh, told me, Andy, if you move over to finance, uh, the the, cl- the classes are all are pretty much all the same, but you'll make uh, twenty thousand dollars more a year as a professor <laughs> in the finance department. Yes, uh, so. Uh, it's, it's dreadful. It's it's dreadful me for me to hear that poli sci actually made less than uh, made less than econ. Right, right. You know, uh, our only saving grace in the college at the moment is that we refer to the finance department as just applied economists, and then they yeah. show us their pay stubs. So <laughs> nice. So so TJ, uh, you know, if you had to pick one event you're you're very self-deprecating uh you're 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 very modest uh in your uh description of yourself uh for those of you that have not met tj he's uh much more uh dynamic and uh and and a kind of a, a force than uh, than he's letting on here uh and because you don't get to be dean of a college of business with, without some of that uh so What's one event in your life that was a real uh, accelerant uh, for your career? Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this a little bit. Um, As I said, I kind of feel like I've fallen upwards. I think that, you know, if there was was one event that I can think of in my career here at UWL that was sort of memorable, memorable because it encapsulated both my, my personality and, and, uh, and then what would eventually be sort of an aspiration to um, uh, take charge a little bit. When I, when I was uh, in my first year, um, there was some transition with the, uh, the health uh, insurance. So the first couple of months, we were not under any uh, health insurance. We had to actually pay for our own health insurance for the first couple of months before the state took over payment. And the first year, um, there was a, a merit pay. And, uh, the university was then required to sort of decide how they wanted to distribute this between the different ranks. Like what percentage would go to everybody? What percentage might go for merit? What percentage might go for uh, equity adjustments? The concern at the time was the full professors were um, it's called compression. And so they decided uh, um, on faculty Senate that uh, some full professors decided they were going to take a large portion of that pay plan and, and allocate it towards their pay away from the assistant professors. Um, and, uh, so I was at that faculty senate meeting early in the fall. You can imagine how this is going to go. Um, and to this day, the people that were there, uh, that are still around, um, still joke about it, but I was sitting in the back and I was sitting next to an econ colleague, uh, uh, who was a full professor and I raised my hand to speak and I was mentioning the health insurance benefits that we had to pay for health insurance. And I said, so I'd really appreciate it if you didn't steal, uh, any of my pay raise. Um, and I used it in kind of what I thought was like a, you know, haha joke, joke. Like I, I'm, I'm being kind of, um, uh, snide and, um, but, but I'm not intending the, well, uh, the chair of faculty senate at the time was, uh, was, uh, very agitated with the conversation of full professor and then proceeded to gavel me out of order. And in the process, like nearly broke the gavel and said, nice. you're out of order. And he started screaming very loudly. 
And I looked at my colleague who, again, next to me, was a uh, wonderful man, Wahab Kondaker. And I looked at him and said, what? Like, what did I say? And he's like, uh, you know, just being you. <laughs> but apparently I wasn't appreciated. And, and that was the moment when I decided, well, I, I think I better um, uh, join this, uh, uh, you know, this, this body, this august body, the faculty senate. So next year I ran for faculty senate and there were just enough people that were entertained that they voted for me. And so um, nice. that was sort of this, the beginning of the end of my, I guess, my uh, beginning of my administrative ambitions, I guess. I felt like I had something to say and wanted to have a voice at the table. So a snide comment, a little pa- passive aggressiveness, yeah. and all of a sudden you're the you're, you're the head of the faculty you know, senate. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It took two oh. years before I was on the faculty senate, but yeah. Or uh, before I was um, uh, on the, the executive committee, but it was pretty soon after. All right. Well, fi- the, 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 the lesson there is find your voice, uh, but uh, maybe in a little more constructive uh, fashion. Uh, right. <laughs> it's been a 22-year, 23-year now process of slowly maturing. I right. Think. Yeah. We're, we're, we're always maturing. So let, let's get into our uh, to- yeah. topic for the day, which is change and change management. Um, can you recall an example or two from your career where, you know, a big change event uh, occurred and the company or institution, in your case, the institution, uh, didn't take into account the change cycle that everybody would need to go through? And, you know, what were the ramifications uh, of that? Yeah, so just uh, you know, to remind everybody, I work for a state-funded state institution um, that's part of a system. So I've got lots of examples of things. I, none of them sort of are what I would call like these huge organizational changes. Uh, these none of the one that I'm going to talk about, but they're they're sort of pretty big uh, process changes. Big in the sense of big for the organization, but they might not intersect with me in the biggest way. But you know, one of them is is uh, uh, an interesting one uh, recently. They've changed sort of the um, model for sort of clearing POs and doing requisitions and uh, all sorts of uh, that type of uh, financial um, part of, of the house. And, uh, you know, the, the problem is, I think, with all of these changes that I've seen that are like this, that they that have failed or gotten off to extremely rocky starts is that inevitably they're designed to solve somebody's problem, but it's somebody's problem at the top who wants to make their job easier. Or even sometimes in a lateral position, they want to make their job easier and they come up with a solution to make their job easier without considering the, the, the cost to those end users who then um, become sort of loud uh, and resistant adopters. Right. And so, um, you know, we had something it's called shop UW and I think they're slowly working out, you know, the kinks, for example, there are things like, you know, we used to have to, as a, as a dean, I'd have to approve every, you know, 20 cents purchase um, as an approver, which of all, you know, involves multiple clicks. Right. And as you can imagine, um, uh, the ability to sort of spend time uh, ascertaining whether it was a legitimate purchase of that 20 cent item uh, is, is not so worth my time. The reality is it's just sort of, again, this, the all of these things that have failed and and oftentimes failed a lot to me most of the ones in this higher ed um setting have happened because they are making someone's job easier without um either some you know without this sort of concept of a pareto improvement right where they 
they um, uh, they can at least compensate someone for their harder job if they have a harder job beneath, or at least understood how they how they interacted with the software or the process. Um, and so, sort of just really a failure to understand the users uh, throughout that change process. Yeah, my in uh, in my next book, uh, I have a chapter on change and uh, change management within businesses and institutions, and I and I purposefully at the end of that chapter have a section on ERP systems and uh, and uh, you know l- large uh, technical uh, in- installations uh, w- within within businesses. Uh, so, di- you know, things like digital transformations yeah. where, yeah, at the end of the day, you're, you know, whose who's problem are you really uh, trying to solve? Right. Uh, and if it's the challenge that, a, that customers are having uh, and, you know, a, a business or institution has to define their, their, their customer and who, who their customer is, uh, then, you know, that that's an easy thing to uh, to understand from a, from a change perspective, uh, but but yeah, I, I totally agree, and I've been involved in those uh, change episodes where where it becomes a a bigger challenge for for folks downstream and somebody in finance or somebody in you know, position X, their life is being made easier, but at mm. the expense of right. uh, of a lot of other people. And at the end of the day, are you really uh, are you really changing for for the better? And I and I I totally agree with you that uh, that that is not always thought all the way through. Right. So there. There are a lot of discussions going on in business and the popular press about the preparedness of college graduates for the world of work. So we're gonna uh, we're gonna take a little change of tact here, but still on the topic of change. The ability to embrace and navigate change is one of the key workplace skills of the future. What's happening within the UWL College of Business to prepare students for a lifetime of change and uncertainty? I think um, I want to take this apart just a little bit. I think I think higher ed is really at a bit of a crossroads in terms of um, we have uh, two goals that seem to be at least in the short run in conflict. So one of those goals is to, to student success at content acquisition, right? Like you're teaching them how to draw supply and demand curves. So you're teaching them like when to change supply and demand curves. And you've got this module that you're working on as part of this principles of economics class. And you want them to be successful at the assessments that you're going to give them. And you're very focused on making sure that, you know, what you expect of them is clear, what, um, what they have to do is clear. And that after having performed that, they're given a, a grade that makes it clear what they um, what they understood to have learned. Um, and that, that focus on all of that sort of clarity and, and dramatically reducing the uncertainty of the world so that they can acquire that particular tool um, mm-hmm. is very helpful for acquiring that particular tool. The, the, the challenge is what you've described or what you're asking me about really is this idea of then how we're preparing them for the uncertainty and messiness of the world 
and the change that they're going to experience. And, and that requires something a little bit different. Like we've taught them the tool, uh, <clears throat> but now they need to know when to use the tool, right? And the environment, when to use the tool and the practice using the tool in the real world. And so um, uh, that's something that, you know, oftentimes has happened outside of class or sometimes, you know, I think historically has just happened on their first job. We haven't done a good job of preparing them for that. But I think what's happened is the better we've become at preparing them to acquire that skill of the tools, the, the worse we're getting at preparing them for the uncertainty of the world. So what we've been working on a lot in the College of Business is sort of making sure that students are getting sort of more authentic experiences, right? So, you know, whether that be including some problem-based learning, whether that be um, doing some actual consulting projects for real live clients as part of their class. And uh, the opportunity to sort of do those things in a class, even sometimes, uh, even if it's not the full class, it's just a particular project in the class, being exposed to the messiness of the world at least helps them understand that these tools, box of tools we've taught them, um, you know, can be used. And sometimes they're not even used in exactly the way we taught them, uh, but the concepts are still um, there and they can find their way through. So, um that's the thing I think that, uh, you know, we're working on uh, to help students with that, that uncertainty. But it, it's, a, it's a tough one. And again, I think there's a tension in helping students acquire these tools versus helping them acquire that, those broader skills um, of dealing with change and uncertainty. Yeah, I, I, I've thought for quite a while that uh, grades uh, are, uh, are a big impediment to the acquisition of of the of 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 of, ex, of experiences and and experience and the bridge from uh, direct learning to experiential learning, I was really excited to see some of the things that uh, that you are doing uh, with uh, with uh, with with one one of our local businesses. You know, you had you had the. The, the the consulting uh, project right right in there can can you spend a little bit of time describing what your students were doing there? Yeah, so we um, have a, a local company, uh, a Quick Trip, which is a um, uh, gas and convenience uh, retailer uh, located in the Upper Midwest here, and um, they're partnering with us, and they're one of the clients for this class that includes um, students taking basically the first. Um, HR class, the first marketing class, and the first finance class together as a cohort, along with a class on professional communications. That's really a, a consulting uh, class. And they're given a charge, and it's a real charge. I mean, this particular company is a, a, uh, has a 1,000 employees, and it's located in our relatively small town of 50,000. And, and they're projected to grow by you know 20% a year for the next few years. And they're really going to need that professional staff. And so they had a company culture that was about being present. They went through COVID and now they um, need to adopt to sort of the hybrid workplace or potentially be a little bit more open to some of that in some of the roles that they have and adjust their corporate culture. And so they asked the students to do a couple of things for them. One, you know, like how can they recruit, retain uh, workers in this sort of new work environment and to certainly do it locally. And our students then spend, you know, a third of the semester diving into the research, bringing in the um, uh, content that they learned in their class lectures for those three classes of 
HR, finance, and marketing. And so to bring those all together, uh, to be able to then provide them um, a white paper, a presentation on some of the you know internal marketing that they should be doing to their employees, the external marketing they should be doing to um, college students. They had uh, some of the groups had done some surveys of college students to find out about you know what their interest was in in uh, telework, and it was you know very interesting because. Of course, you know, as recruiters, they were going out and they were they would uh, go out to a Madison or an Eau Claire and the students would approach them and say that we were only looking for 100 percent remote. And they interviewed our students and they were looking for 100 percent in person. Well, you know, <laughs> some of these differences are, of course, the students that want 100 percent remote are the students who want to stay living in Madison and stay living in Eau Claire. And the right. students who are interested in being 100 percent in person are the students interested in staying in the cross. Right. So it worked for them. But that was uh, uh, something that the, I think the uh, recruiters hadn't really sort of contemplated and understood, and that was information provided by our, our students. And so the students get this great experience of doing this high-level corporate presentation for the, you know, the recruiting HR um, director and her staff that are on the front lines, and they're able to ask them these questions. And the students are then put in that sort of uncomfortable position of having to provide a on-the-spot answer based upon their research and the things that they've learned. And so it really is, uh, the students talk about it this way, but you can really see it. It's, it's transformational in the sense that you can see the students mature you know, almost in front of your eyes and the confidence that they gain from this because they really just experienced what, what we're talking about today. They, they came into something very uncomfortable. They were uncertain, unsure of themselves. They figured out a way through to find some answers. Maybe not the best answers. Maybe not, you know, they're not going to be the top consultant of the year, but they found their way through that process. Yeah. And they feel like now they can do it again, having done it once. But they so seldom get that, I think, in their in their formal education earlier that um, they don't have that confidence. And so you see them mature in front of your eyes and they come out the other end with um, uh, an ability to talk about that experience. And um, and it's really great. Yeah, it as I'm listening to you, the the word value and val and the phrase value add uh, really comes to mind, which is, you know, when you're in a class and you're and you're pursuing a grade, that's the value that you're going for, and that value is very self centered. That grade is for me and my GPA, mm-hmm. and I'm just on a hamster wheel pursuing better and better grades so I can get a great GPA, but. On the other side of that is the exper- uh, the experiential learning uh, process, which is about adding value. Th- these students are adding value to a real business that's going to ultimately be able to serve its employees and its customers uh, better. So, uh, so this you know yeah. this message is for all of my academic uh, colleagues out there that we need more experiential learning opportunities and not just side projects, but weave them into courses so that the value that is created is something that the student can directly see. And it's not just, oh, I drew a supply and demand curve correctly. So yay, I got an A and uh, and and I I created value uh, like yeah. that. Yeah. What, what do you think about meaning. that? Yeah, yeah. I, I 100% agree. I think it's it's uh, it's really killing two birds with one stone on some level, right? It's it's having a meaningful impact on society and maybe the business society 
or if you're working with a nonprofit, you can have that uh, kind of meaning that students can get from it. But it's also sort of the internal learning that they're doing as well at the same time. So it really is um, uh, effective uh, use of their time. Yeah. So I've got to ask you this question. Yeah. We're we're here together uh, to. Uh, well, you're a current academic. I'm a former a former academic. Uh, how do we build? stronger change management muscles within faculty and administration? Because earlier in our show today, you were talking about what are major changes within an academic setting, but would be minor changes in, uh, in a, in a, (laughs) you know, in a business, in a business setting, things move very slowly in academe and you know how do we build more resilience and uh, and and better change muscles within those that really have an influence on the future direction of of our institutions? Yeah, I think you know I think this is I I, uh, I want to uh, you know take this one apart a little bit too. I also I think in some ways academic institutions are extremely agile, entrepreneurial, and there's a, a lot of change. Because if you think about, I mean, like we do research, right? So like we're literally on the, when we're doing research, we're on the forefront of that change and understanding change and being open to new ideas and and using them. I mean, you, you get rewarded in research by not sticking to using the same methods that you've used for a hundred years, right. but right, but adopting new methods. So right. like we are very good at it. Uh, in that respect, and sometimes even to a fault, right? When it comes to teaching and pedagogy, I, mean, I think sometimes we are a little bit too quick to adopt the newest pedagogy, or you know, um, to, to change things in our classes for change sake because we want to entertain ourselves and um, uh, and things like that. But that's interesting that that exists in this organization that the organization itself right. can't fundamentally go through any kind of big changes, right? I mean, it's it's uh, completely resistant to it. But part of it is like, if you think about, I mean, there's good, I won't say there's good reasons for it, but I think it's understandable. I mean, the faculty to encourage that innovation in research and innovation in teaching, we've um, selected for a bunch of people who are like independent entrepreneurial, independent contractors who are very entrepreneurial minded, but in their own way, right? So not sort of people who are as quick to adopt an organizational culture and go along with changes. They're the people who are the exact ones who are always going to sabotage any change, right? They're the ones at the back of the room who are going to say, but so-and-so's theory says we can't make that change. And so, and then, you know, two of them say that. And then next thing you know, they got a group of four or five and <laughs> and you can't get anything done. And that includes sort of like, you know, just uh, going through the buffet line, right? Because someone will have uh, been arguing about the, uh, the process by which you go through the buffet line, right? So they'll, they'll right. sabotage the simplest of things. Um, so I, I think, you know, I mean, I like this idea of the, you know, the idea of the burning platform uh, uh, in the sense that this is what I think ultimately leads, uh, will lead universities to change is literally, you know, their, their house will be on fire and they'll have to. Um, and you're starting to see that with some places like, you know, uh, COVID is a good example, right? I mean, who would have thought that most of these traditional universities where they had science faculty teaching that refused to ever teach a class online in any fashion or another, say it was absolutely impossible. 
And in three weeks they did it. Right. Yeah. So like, I mean, that's the type of burning platform, I guess. And that demonstrates that change is possible in these organizations and not that there was the greatest change and that you would want to, you know, uh, but it, but it is possible. Unfortunately, I think for lots of the traditional institutions, it's going to be through those types of events that they change. And the one coming is the demographic change, right? right. That is going to, um, you know, reorganize the space. The slow one that's been occurring has been the defunding of public education, right? So the, yep. the smaller and smaller state contribution to public education has made public institutions much more like private institutions and and um, that's forced us to sort of change uh, uh, more slowly to adapt to it. But, you know, other than sort of, again, encouraging um, leaders to adopt a lot of the, we know, the leadership skills that are required of good change leaders, you know, the empathy, the transparency, uh, the, the communication skills. Uh, other than encouraging that, I, I do see uh, higher ed as just, um, in terms of that larger organizational structure um, being dragged, kicking and screaming into the next century. Yeah. Well, maybe this is one of those uh, moments where somebody's going to listen to this and go, ah, TJ, you know, the, 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 the thing that you told us at the top of the show that you're in the back of the room and made a snide comment. So may, maybe, uh, may, maybe this is, uh, one of those uh, one of those moments. Oh, I'll admit that now that I'm on this side of the table, I'm yeah. my, I might I my former self is my worst enemy, right? Like yes. I'm looking for my former self in the room, going, "That guy is going to sabotage whatever I say." Um, so I'm nice. uh, trying to again mature. So we've just got a couple of minutes left. Uh, I've got uh, a couple of quick hitter questions for you. Uh, you know, on this podcast, we talk about uh, skills and reskilling. Uh, what are some of the top human skills that you'd encourage the leadership comp the, the leadership team of an academic institution that's contemplating a major change to proactively instill in their teams uh, and employees? Yeah. Yeah, I think this is interesting, right? So, you know, the, the skills that leaders need to have to sort of lead through change are different than the skills, the, uh, for lack of a better word, the followers uh, or the folks who are sort of implementing those changes have to have. I mean, the leaders, you know, you, they want to be good communicators and listen and be transparent and empathetic. Um, but the implementers really have to sort of, they have to approach it. And this is ultimately what has been effective in the higher ed space. They have to approach it like it's a, a research question or an opportunity to participate in, in change, right? And if you can, you can flip it to something that um, is, is something that is going to make them excited. So in the, in the area of academia, if you can talk about sort of some of these changes as a research project for faculty to get them excited about it, I think that that's helpful. Um, and, you know, the same thing sort of for the types of skills that you're going to want to have, you're going to want to, you know, Encourage people to have the skills to, one, be open-minded and flexible, to be able to provide feedback, right? Because you're going to want honest, regular feedback um, that's, that's effective and useful, right? So helping people understand when it's useful, when it's not useful. Um, and, then, and then for them to, again, sort of be open to seeing the opportunities to have an impact, right? They have to be a partner in the change, um, and they have to understand that they're a partner in the change, you know, through real authentic uh, partnership. And I think that that's all the difference. 
yeah. will make all the difference. So now to the student end of things, a graduating senior walks into your office and says they want to improve their work readiness and chances of securing meaningful employment after graduation. What's one of the top things that you tell them? Well, fortunately, I don't get a lot of these questions. Um, they don't. They don't come into my office. Uh, but this should. is good. This is good. They should, and this will be good practice. I'll try this one out. Look, I think that um, you know, from the students that that would um, come into uh, to my office, I think are the the types of students that would have come out from a business school and maybe have a little bit of uh, um, the 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 mindset that uh, they've just learned a specific skill right? Sort of vocational mindset. And the first thing I'm going to say to them is that, um, you know, you got you still got a liberal arts education, but the thing that's going to help you most in your career is this openness to continually learning, right? That, that the belief that you walk out that door when you graduate and that it's over is, um, if it's been sold to you, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's that's not the case. You have to, I mean, I think some kids, it's been sold to them. Like when you're done with college, you're done. Uh, but it's being open to sort of learning new things, new experiences. And whether it's just sort of like formal learning or informal learning, it's just being open and willing to embrace the the these experiences. And, you know, your question asks about meaning. They have to continue to look for what what is meaningful to them in their life. And that, at the end of the day, I think is are the most important um, skills that they could have going forward. Right. Excellent. Thank you for yeah. supporting one of uh, lifelong learning, one of my yeah. uh, uh, key, key taglines there. Uh, so as we conclude our time together, I'm a UW, University of Wisconsin at La Crosse graduate. I'm keen to ensure that schools like UWL remain relevant for decades into the future. What's one thing that you're excited about that will keep UWL and its College of Business at the forefront of business education? Yeah, that's really what we were talking about earlier, this, this willingness um, for um, some of our corporate partners and some of our nonprofit um, uh, partners to engage with our students, because I think they're finding that it's a great pipeline for them and their needs in the future, but they also find it rewarding for them and their employees to be able to engage with the, uh, the students, right? And so it's, it's this ability to get um, students connected with people in the world of work, to work on a problem together, and for both of them to benefit from that relationship. Um, and sort of a breaking down a little bit of what's the traditional classroom and the traditional professor-student model and, and uh, really sort of um, uh, helping students realize there's lots of people they can learn from and, and that they can see those people coming back in and learning something from them, right? The enthusiasm of the 18, 19-year-olds is pretty infectious and, you know, you can get stale working with your colleagues sometimes in a business. So being able to spend some time with some uh, younger people and hear some of the things that they're doing in their lives and things that they're excited about really can help to rejuvenate you. So it's really a two-way street, but it's creating those opportunities is what I'm really focused on for the for the College of Business in the in the future. 
Yeah, I'd like to just punch that point of the two-way street. If you're a business leader and you're disappointed with the outputs that you get from your local college or university, uh, but you're not actively doing anything about it, then you really don't can't be disappointed with the with the results that that you're getting because it is a two-way street. You have to work uh, uh, together. Uh, to to you know to create those uh, those outputs uh, those uh, those students who are going to become your, your valued uh, contributors in in your business. So just sitting back and waiting for great uh, great outputs, I think, is uh, is a fallacy. Yeah, if I could share just a quick point on this. So you know, for the longest time, I was afraid to engage the uh, business community because I felt like you know. This is my job. I'm, I'm supposed to grade the students. Who wants to come in and listen to a presentation uh, from students? And it didn't dawn on me until, until later that it's um, when they come in, they're kind of like grandparents, right? So like grandparents come in, they take the kids, and as soon as the kids misbehave, they let them go. So when these folks from the business world come in, they get to listen to this presentation. They get to offer their wisdom. They get all of the, the feedback, excitement from students, and they, they feel knowledgeable. The students look up to them. They don't have to assign a grade. They're not doing the actual grading. They're not doing any of the hard work, right? So they're just doing like the important work, right? That feedback part, which is really important. And so when someone described that to me and how important that was to their employees to get that, it it dawned on me like, yeah, I'm not actually asking them to grade. I'm just asking them to do the fun part of it. Um, And so uh, it really is uh, uh, beneficial for both sides. The fun but very impactful, the the leading through example. Yes, that's what uh, one of the things that you're giving back as yeah. uh, as an employer who's engaging, really engaging, like Quick Trip is doing with uh, yeah. local colleges. So yeah. we're out of time. Uh, TJ, thank you so much uh, for your contributions uh, to the business and institutional community through this conversation. Uh, my name is Andrew Tempty. Uh, this is the Balancing Act podcast. You can find us on all the major podcasting services. Uh, please like, subscribe, and rate, and we will see you next time.